Hey, Simon here, the host of the Worship Security Academy, the podcast. And before we get into today's show, I want to tell you about our online church safety and security conference called Securing Your Place of Worship. This year, our eighth annual event is going online. Please join us September 19th and 20th, where you'll hear speakers that include Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman and Dr. James Densley from the Violence Project. Now, I don't want you to miss out, so please head over to worshipsecurity.org forward slash securing your place of worship conference. Worshipsecurity.org forward slash securing your place of worship conference to learn more and to get your tickets for this online event. Remember, September 19th and 20th. Okay, without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Arix, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. Obviously, you invited me on the Firearms Nation podcast. We had a lot of fun talking about my background, what led me into law enforcement and my journey into church security. I'm really excited to reciprocate and introduce you to my audience. So welcome to the podcast. And I'd love for you just to start off a little bit about, you know, who you are. Tell us about your podcast, because that's a great resource for people that are interested in firearms. And then I want to talk about your time in law enforcement and how that can sort of help churches. I think I still believe there's a sort of lack of knowledge as to how law enforcement can really partner with churches. So we're going to sort of take the conversation there. But um, I'm talking too much. Introduce yourself and tell us a bit about you. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on, Simon. And it was a pleasure having you on my show. Uh, Like I said, during that time, I found it fascinating to talk to somebody who was from uh, the UK and and served uh, in their police. And uh, if you you listen to that show, you can hear us uh, really geek down into uh, the minutia between, you know, American law enforcement and uh, British law enforcement. But I am a a 20-year veteran of a major metropolitan agency here in the United States. And during that time, I've I've done regular patrol, uh, done bicycle patrol. I was a field training officer. Uh, I spent about eight years in our training division. And in that context, I was a, a firearms instructor. That was my pr- primary responsibility. And then uh, some ancillary jobs was uh, coming up with an active shooter program, uh, an active shooter program for civilians, and uh, you know, teaching our in-service uh, when necessary. Uh, on the side, I am a competitive shooter, and I've been doing that for 12, 13 years. And uh, to me, that has been like the, the most positive aspect of uh, uh, learning how to shoot was getting into competition. And from those connections and from my uh, law enforcement background as an instructor, I was able to put together a, uh, a podcast, the Firearms Nation podcast, which is a, a weekly show that I talk to people both on the competitive side and the tactical side, including, you know, police officers and military people, as well as, you know, anyone else uh, in the firearms world, uh, journalists and and authors. And I just find it fascinating because it's it's such a part of our culture, as you well know. Uh, I know it's a little bit different in, in England, uh, but in the United States it is a, a dominant, it's a dominant discussion point. <laughs> you can't go anywhere. Everyone's talking about either the pro-gun, anti-gun. Uh, we just, you know, we have... They call them mass shootings, and I don't think that's the most appropriate term. I think that's a, a, a political term, a media term, because uh, everyone defines a mass shooting at different levels. You know, are we talking two people? Or are we talking 10 people? 
So, but it, it makes the headlines in this 24 hour news cycle. So uh, I think that's where we're at in this country, but it is definitely a topic. And so that's why I cover it. Well, if people do listen to our podcast that we recorded previously, I'll drop a link so people can learn a little bit more about me. Uh, you definitely know that I've embraced the firearms culture a little bit since I've been here in America. And I do have uh, a few things in my gun cabinet, it's fair to say. But let's let's just start there first. And I do want to cover law enforcement partnerships, working with churches, but you, you touched on something. So I want, to, I want to dive into that first about introducing competition. You, you said you're a competition shooter. When I talk to churches, one of the biggest issues that I have in and around firearms is not that should they be inside churches, it's how do we get people's skills to a level where they feel confident to use that firearm in an adverse situation. So um, why is it so important to try and introduce competition to sort of your firearms repertoire, if you like? Well, I think people get uh, maybe a false sense of their level of proficiency by just going to the range and and planking or shooting at targets with with no real stress in, in induced into that uh, training you know you can maybe you know, do some physicality by running or doing jumping jacks and stuff like that to get your heart rate up but it's not the same there's a certain level of anxiety that happens when when you're competing and it, i think the most practical way is practical shooting where you're moving and you're, you're shooting targets that move and sometimes you have to run and you have to come up with stage plans and you have to understand what you're shooting at and understand what's happening with your firearm and you're doing it in front of people. And that, and that's the, you know, once you've done it once or twice, you know, that in front of people kind of goes away for the most part, because you realize that most people are just worried about themselves, but you do have that stress that you're performing in front of other people. We have a natural tendency not to want to look, stupid in front of other people. That's why people don't like to public speak. So when you're up there and, and you're competing, yeah, it throws a lot of stress on you. I, I, you know, force on force is another way to do it. But I think the gun handling is just like, you know, any sport or any musical instrument. It's something that you should be doing every day. So if firearm feels natural in your hands and then you understand what's happening with it, you know, that if you're, you're running the gun and you have a malfunction or you run out of ammo, it's not something that you're, you're not aware of. You've been there, you, you know when the gun doesn't feel right and you'll, you'll fix whatever that problem that is, whether it needs more ammo or whether you need to do some sort of immediate action to get the gun back in the battery. So that's where I think competition comes into play. Me, myself, from my experience, and I'm sure other people have a similar experience. When I first started competing, it changed everything for me. And the more I, you know, especially in law enforcement, not to say that, you know, you were in law enforcement and um, there's always kind of that divide between the citizenry and the people of service, you know, them versus us. But when you're in their world and they're all doing better than you as as competitive shooters, you're like, you know, you feel embarrassed. You're like, my God, I carry this gun all the time for a living and here I am performing at such a bad level. So you want to do better. And, you know, believe it or not, they want you to do better too because they know that you're there to protect them. So you learn from them and you eventually get better with time. And then, yeah, so for my shooting, it it blew away everything that I was learning on the force. And it's right what you say, because when I go to the range, and I can't remember what the, actually my permit to carry here in Minnesota is about to run out next month, so I've got to renew that. But 
I think you have to discharge around down the range and it's either seven feet or or seven yards. I get, I get confused now. I've lived in America for too long. I don't know which, I don't know what I should be saying, but there's a big difference between just standing there at seven feet and hitting a, a paper target as opposed to being in there in real life. So um, it's somewhere where mind, mind often drifts to when I see people at range saying, you know, this is good to do this and get skills, but you, you're right, you know, the stress, the inoculation of stress is key to, to improving your skills. So, yeah, I, I just want to start there just because you mentioned um, competitive um, training, which is key. So I'm going to say something. A lot of my listeners might laugh now and say, Simon, why are you asking that question? However, I spent 14 years in the police in England. I've lived in America now for 12 years. I've never been the victim of a crime. I've never had to call the police and report a crime. Do you mind taking us, Eric, to the very, very beginning? And again, my listeners, bear with me because not everyone has reported a crime like me. Can you talk us through what happens when a church might report a crime to law enforcement, be it an allegation of sexual assault, be it someone's the treasurer of stolen money, which is very common, be it a theft or a burglary? Uh, you know, what can the church expect um, that sort of response and uh, relationship to look like? Uh, sure, I will, I will gladly talk about that. But before we get into that, I, I just want to touch up on something you said about that you've yeah, never sure. a crime. Believe it or not, many, many years ago, let's see, it's got to be almost 30 years ago. I'm dating myself, but I, I was living in Los you're Angeles. Four, you're 44, right? Yeah, so you were right. 14 I'm when this happened. <laughs> so... I, I lived in Los Angeles for about eight years, nine years. And during that time, my apartment was broken into, my car was stolen, and I was robbed with a, with a gun pointed to my head. Wow, so, that was a bad week. And, oh, it was, <laughs> <laughs> that was one week. day. That was my first day in Los yeah. Angeles. No, that's it. I, I have been a victim of crime. This is obviously before I was in law enforcement and a uh, different understanding of that element because you know what most people don't have to interact with that element in their life yeah unfortunately you know we're forced into that to to understand that psyche and to see the horrible things that happen uh but when if you report a crime here in america the first thing that's going to happen is an officer is going to come and start the investigation so you know wherever it's going to be or they might have you come into the the station to talk about it what is ever more comfortable for you? You know, if it's a crime that just happened and there's a, a crime scene, meaning that there's evidence of, say, if it was a burglary at a church, mm. the best thing to do at that moment is to just not touch anything else, leave things that the way they were, you know, don't need to clean up. Obviously, you know, if, if there's some hate crime elements to it, you don't want to clean it up just yet because all that needs to be documented for evidence. The the, the fresher the scene, the, the quicker you can call us the better it's going to be because the evidence will still be uh, fresh. And, you know, God forbid you, you came there and someone ran out, obviously call right away. Don't wait because, you know, that helps us knowing that the person just left the scene. We can do things. We have methods of trying to contain that person and, and apprehend them right there and then as opposed to having a drawn on investigation. But say that it's after the fact and you're reporting that you're reporting that burglary. Again, don't touch anything because we're going to come out We'll talk to you. We're going to document it. We're going to, you know, we either have crime scene show up or people who are trained in crime scene techniques. Sometimes it's the officer themselves. Sometimes it's service aides and they're going to dust for fingerprints and everyone's watched CSI. So they know what we're talking about. They're going to dust for fingerprints. They're going to photograph stuff. They're going to look for any type of evidence. Maybe when they broke glass, they cut themselves. There's a drop of blood, anything that doesn't seem 
part of the ordinary that's there will be documented, collected, and sent for further investigation. And while that's going on, you eventually, you know, once that report is filed in a, a couple of days or depending on the severity, a detective or two detectives will come out and uh, talk to you and continue the investigation. And it's, um, I don't want to sound funny when I say this or Ruth, but the reason why I started with that basic question is that some people don't know. And I can remember when I was, uh, maybe you've come across this, Arik, as well, but when I was a detective on the burglary team, I cannot remember the amount of times that I would go to the house and I was like, so so where's the burglary? And I'd say, oh, we cleaned it all up. Right. It's like, well, well, why did you do that? Or they'd say, oh, yeah, the, the assailant um, removed some stuff from our fridge and it looks like they ate some food, which is sort of really strange. So well, that's great. You know, have you got the plate? Oh, it's in the dishwasher. You know, <laughs> so, so, so some of my listeners might think, well, why is Simon starting in such a basic question? But not everyone has had experience of reporting a crime. And we naturally do things where, well, I don't want my house to be messy when law enforcement come around. But, you know, it's really important, isn't it, to, to leave the scene as it is, no matter what the allegation is, burglary, you know, sexual crime, whatever it is, that the police are going to come and want to preserve the evidence. So I think the message we want to say to people is, you know, please leave things as they are and let law enforcement see what's happened, even if it's an embezzlement and you found some papers or some documentation is, you know, just, just leave everything in situ and let law enforcement do their, do their job. Yes. Uh, obviously, uh, if, if there's cameras, which I hope most of uh, these religious institutions have, it's so important to have cameras uh, and they're so easy to come by these days, you know, not even, I would say five, six years ago, you know, surveillance cameras were very expensive. Now you can get much better deals and you don't have to go crazy with it and still get pretty decent uh, video because yeah. that, that helps a lot. One, it's yeah. a big deterrent. It's a very big deterrent. Uh, the criminals knowing that there's cameras here, that the cameras are working, they're going to go someplace where they're not. But you know, in Idaho, it's like not, every, not all criminals are, are smart, so they'll still do the crime. And preserving that evidence, being able to have access to the evidence, that's another thing. You know, Sometimes you go to these calls where people are like, oh, I, I don't have access to whatever. We have to wait for our, our executive director. Oh, when's he coming back? Oh, he's out of town. Well, there, there needs to be a backup plan because... Uh, time is always of the element, you know, the longer it draws out, the, the harder it's going to be. So, you know, it's not like we want to finish things quickly. Our chances of catching this person are, are easier in, in the shorter time frame than it is the longer it goes on. Also along those lines, you might be asked to provide, you know, uh, negative prints, meaning that we want to fingerprint you as well. So we, we know, you know, we're going to find a whole bunch of fingerprints here. We know who doesn't belong and then who we need to look into. Yeah, that's a great point. And one of the things that I find working with churches, I think this is not a general statement, but most houses of worship, they're dealing with very quite sensitive crimes. It could be an allegation of child sexual misconduct. Now, one of the biggest crimes that my listeners should know is that um, the, the level of embezzlement in churches is just, it, it's unreal, the, the level of case. We actually had a case here in Minnesota where a church treasurer stole like $450,000 over like 12 years, you know, so we're, we're looking at, well, what, what are their financial controls to stop it? But that, that's for another podcast episode. But my my point is that there's a lot of sensitivity about the style of crimes in the church. And I think sometimes that can cause churches to not want to call law enforcement or wonder, 
well, how are they going to deal with the privacy of this that you know, our church treasurer has embezzled hundreds of thousands of dollars? And maybe there's a bit of embarrassment there as to well, how do we let that happen? Or there's an allegation from a young child or a family of sort of child sexual misconduct. How is our faith community going to be perceived that we've allowed a predator inside our church and this allegation's been, been made? So is there any sort of uh, advice or any guidance you could give ch uh, to a church surrounding the sensitivity they may feel of being a faith community coming to, the, to a, a police department and reporting very sensitive crimes? Well, that's, that's kind of a, a, a tough question to answer. So one of the things that I think you actually talk about in your book is uh, that issue of people not wanting to report things uh, due to the fact that it it can draw embarrassment to the the institution. So if you were talking about you know uh, some sort of sexual predator, uh, you know a child sexual predator, obviously you know th these victims have rights and they have rights to privacy. And I, I, I'm sure the laws are similar in Minnesota as they are in Florida. Uh, but there's a lot of you know possible criminal action can be taken against you as as an investigator uh, for leaking that information out or inappropriately having that information available to to sources. So we're very careful with that sensitive information, especially when it deals with minors, especially since if it's dealing with sexual battery on a minor. Uh, so institutions should feel confident in that matter. Allowing a child sexual predator into your church, I mean, that's something that internally you're going to have to deal with. Think of it the other, you know, on the, on the opposite end of the spectrum, you don't deal with it. And then more than one person is abused. How's that going to look? And then they find out that you knew about it the first time. Uh, so that's why I would say, you know, I'm a religious person myself. I, I feel that if if you're in that responsibility and you know about it, it I think it's more of a sin to hide that fact than to deal with it head on and 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 hopefully cause uh, that person to, to, to be arrested and, and convicted. Yeah, and I, I think the reason why my brain took you there, this is going back, this could have been 2015, 2016, and it's an unbelievable story, but it's a true story, where a church contacted me, and it was on a Monday, and they said, over the weekend, we had someone that tried to remove someone from our preschool during uh, so it must have been Sunday school, it's during the service. I said, okay, so you know, so sort of what happened? And they said, well, this person got someone removed them from our, our Sunday school and was in the parking lot when we found out. And they said it wasn't their parent, um, it wasn't a member of a church, and we don't know who the person was. And I said, okay, so what you're saying is that there was an attempted child abduction in your church. And they said, said yes. And I said, okay, so let, let's talk this through then. So what did the police say? And they said, well, we didn't call the police. And I said, well, well what do you mean? And I said, well, no, we didn't, we didn't call the police. We, we sort of want you to help us sort of deal with this. I said, well, but the police are always, and I'd encourage anyone to listen to this podcast, the police are always the first call outside of me being a security consultant and, and you sort of being a, an expert in your field. You, know, you call the police first because they are the public defenders. So People might listen to this and think well, we're covering some basic stuff, but there are people that don't necessarily comprehend, well, I should be calling law enforcement. They think to call me as a consultant and say, well, how could you help us? It's like, well, there's been an attempted child abduction. You should, you should have called 911 and got the, the license plate and registration. And like I said, that, that's a true story. I was shocked 
and horrified by by how a church had dealt with it. But I think in in retrospect, they just had no experience. They didn't know what to do, and they were just sort of like, "Well, how is this going to how is this going to sort of look on us?" And we can deal with this internally. Well, you know, some of these things, as you know, are you know they can't. They should be calling nine one one and seeking the police support. Yeah, well, absolutely. We we recently had something here where, you know, with with ring. Uh, cameras, people yeah. see a lot of stuff. And these people saw suspects breaking into their cars on the ring cameras. And it was like two o'clock in the morning. And in, instead of calling the police, then instead of calling the police that day, they wrote an email to their homeowners association asking them, you know, what are we doing about this? How is security going to help? You know, a crime had been committed. <laughs> but they're, they're, they're complaining to their homeowners association about security and you know what do we do next well i mean his response was you've got to call the police now yeah like, it, it no one's going to report a crime unless you report that crime and when it happens you need to call the police you don't don't you know call me first because i have nothing to do with it i'm just the director of your homeowners association so yeah there's there's definitely a disconnect uh, a lot of people don't want to get law enforcement involved for whatever reason and churches and synagogues they're they're very welcoming they are very welcoming you know they they don't want to turn people away the the look of you know too much security can be a, an off-putting why do these people have so much security what you know what's going on you know i i don't feel like i i belong here so yeah i understand that but at the same time it is a scary world out there and there are people who who obviously in we, we talked about on, on my podcast you know the the, the active uh, killer at 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 the, at the Christian school uh, yeah, in Nashville, yeah, in Nashville. You know, there are people who religion is one of those things where you know sometimes people go off off the the, the deep end with that stuff, and so they are targets. And religion is under attack all the time. So you need to get Simon's book and come up with some sort of safety team, but you also should have some procedures in place for not just security, but you know, who's contacting the police and, you know, make sure that that's done no matter what it is. And, you know, that, that same saying where you say, if you see something, say something, right. Everybody is a security guard. Everybody is a detective in, in your church. If something doesn't look right, there's gotta be a way, Hey, this usher needs to know and he'll, He'll tell, you know, whatever the security director and say, listen, you know, I don't I see this guy hanging outside all the time. You know, I don't know what's going on. And just simply talking to that person might either you get a better understanding of why that person's there, who they're with, or it might be like, hey, you know what, maybe I won't do an assault here or break into the cars while they're in service because obviously they're on to me and then they'll go somewhere else. But you should still contact the police because that's what we get paid to do. We get paid to go talk to these kind of people. Yeah, absolutely. They are still the first responders. And we sort of touched on this when we started about you know, your level of training and skill and the competition that you do in firearms. And I think that's very similar in a way to, you know, the preparation that goes into that day that you hope never comes where you need to sort of be in a position to use a firearm. And it's it's very similar to a church trying to build a relationship with a police department before something happens. So when I was asking you some difficult questions, I wasn't giving you an easy question when I was sort of saying, you know, I'll ask you there, that is a difficult question about how does the, how does the church build trust with their police department? It's most probably, Arik, forming the relationship before you need to make that call. So I guess, 
Is there anything that you can sort of say about how should a church, large or small, what is the best way for them to forge a relationship with people like you and their law enforcement agencies so they have a little bit of trust before something happens, they feel confident, no, I'm, I'm going to pick up the phone because I know I can talk to Arik and he'll understand it and he'll help us. So how does a house of worship build that relationship with a police department? No, I think the first thing is just look into your membership, look into your congregants. There's probably somebody who's already in law enforcement, whether at the state, local or federal level, in your in your institution and and talk to them and and see you know get their ideas about stuff uh they might be local to where the the church is because that's where they live and they you know they want to raise their family with certain values and the kids in in day school or or a preschool or religious school at that institution so that that would be the first step uh also reach out to the department you know one of the great things that we like and i'm sure you can attest to this is that if you know, we get a whole bunch of baked goods or something uh, on the holidays or just, you know, we're just stopping by and introduce ourselves. And, and this is our bake club and we bake these goods for you. You know, we love that stuff <laughs> because remember, we work 24 seven and there's someone always working and they would love to be able to go into the break room and have something good to eat. You could also offer uh, events, you know, do some sort of event where it's a law enforcement appreciation where they, you know, reach out to the, the chief of police or whoever is in, you know, the, the sheriff of, of your town and you say, hey, we want to do some sort of event, maybe a family event where, you know, they could bring their families and we'll have water slides. And I'm thinking summer, obviously, uh, but we'll have water slides. And, yeah. and, and you're in Florida as well. So there's some people like me are it better under snow for eight months of a year. So don't rub it in. It's been a crazy year for sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, but the weather here in Florida is beautiful. You're more than welcome to come here. I'm uh, going to come and visit you at some point for sure. Be careful what uh, you wish for. Okay. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's, you know, just that type of engagement, uh, you, you're going to get uh, people. And then usually the, the church is in somebody, some officer's zone. So at a bare minimum, you should get to know that, that zone officer, that zone uh, deputy. And, you know, again, invite him in for coffee one day while, you know, he's hanging out there and say, listen, at any time you want to just, you know, write your reports, uh, just come by our parking lot. You can write your reports on your computer while you're sitting there and, you know, we'll come by, we'll give you some coffee or something. Not that it's necessary to give him coffee, uh, but it's, you know, a nice gesture and, and you can establish that relationship. But on the flip side, that zone deputy should, or that zone officer should be already interacting with you. You know, from an administrator side, I want my guys going to all the religious institution in this area and they should know who they are. And we do encourage them to write your reports there just so there's presence, especially at a lot of these day schools. Yeah, you've raised some good points there about, you know, invites to the mid and you know, the, the, the baked goods and stuff. I mean, even me as a police officer in England, it's universal. You know, p- police officers love, we love cookies. We, lo- we do love donuts, you know, and, and it's a great way to build, build that relationship and build that bridge and, and invite them in and for them to get to know and understand your building. And I think I might have said this to my listeners once before, you know, we did an active shooter drill at my church with uh, the fire was present, the sheriff's office, there was a couple of PDs, the Salvation Army came for food, the city emergency planners, and there was an active shooter inside our worship center. 
and I think it was 16 people um, killed was was the exercise. And the first officer that walked through the door to confront the, the killer was like a 23 year old officer just out of you know just out of school. Um, and to walk into a 150,000 square foot building when the trainer now says you go in and you eliminate the threat and never been in there before. I, I can only imagine how that young officer must have felt. I mean, that must have been, you know, nerves of steel to be able to do that. So you're right. I think the relationship can go both ways. The, the, the church can invite them in and law enforcement would maybe want to embrace it because, like I said, you know, the first time you're walking in there for a call of an active shooter, you don't want that to be the first time you're walking into a building having no idea where anything where anything is. So, yeah, yeah, great points. And, and you just brought up a great point as well, Uh Offer your institution for training. Uh, believe me, we, we are always looking for new places to do this kind of training where even if it's just basic building tactics, obviously you probably um, will have to have some sort of hold harmless type agreement set up, but that's always the legal department can handle that and the, the church attorney can handle that. But once that's signed off, you can use it for a training site. Yeah, they would love to have it for our active shooter and building tactics or, you know, some sort of training because usually departments are beholden to the same shoot house or training site that they've used over and over again. And they know how the setup is. So there's nothing that beats just the real world, especially if it's where they could be responding one day, having that knowledge of I've been here before and I, I know where I'm going. I know how people are going to be or where they're going to be. So yeah, for sure. Offer your place up for training. And that's a great segue because one of the questions I had to ask you was about, well, how can law enforcement help churches? And I know, you know, with your background, I'm stretching some of this um, here for you, but I know one of the ways law enforcement and local police departments can help churches is sometimes they'll go and just do like a basic walk around and just identify things that might be out of place. Obviously, uh, I, my organization, we do physical security risk assessments, but not going to be as detailed as what a consultant organization might do, but they will walk around and just give you some pointers and say, hey, have you considered this? Um, have you done that? So uh, what other things, are it can you think of where a church could utilize a uh, police department to sort of help them get their program up and running or just sort of be, be more safe and secure? Well, I always think that whether it's the one of the clergy or one of the administrative staff should make contact with uh, the chief of whatever area they, their, their church is or religious institution is. And, uh, you know, just do a face-to-face, -face, talk to them, express their concerns. And then again, usually the, the chief will talk about, yeah, I'll have the, the zone unit. They'll be by, but also in their community policing division, they, they will come by and do these security assessments. That's part of their, they're called septed. They'll, yeah. they'll go around, they'll, they'll check environmental stuff. And like sometimes that. they call them, are they call them like a crime prevention survey yes. or like a crime prevention? Is that what I sometimes call them? Yes, yeah, absolutely. And uh, so, yeah, they'll, they'll do that and they'll make a report for you. And sometimes it's necessary too for uh, federal grants. You know, they have all these religious yes. institution federal grants that they need these surveys done ahead of time. Uh, so yeah, you can get the these surveys and they can look bottom line, you know, they'll they'll talk about cameras, they'll talk about good locks, they'll talk about, you know, if you have the money, bulletproof door or bulletproof coating on the windows, they'll talk about, you know, make sure you're you have a a good fence that's covering, you know, the playground where the kids are so they're not seen, you know, stuff like that, you know, uh, barriers for vehicles from driving in. 
things like that. So yes, you can get those types of surveys from uh, the police. Uh, you just got to go out there and ask for it. And that's great because that ties into what you really said earlier about, you know, reaching out and forging that relationship by going, I don't know, this is an English term, how we call them sort of like, you know, beat bobbies, I guess. We spoke about that in your podcast, but, you know, the community officer or the community um, sort of volunteer, whatever it might be, invited them out and said, can you walk around our building? Um, a couple of reasons that's good is one, they're going to give you some tips and tools to improve your security. And second, it's going to improve that relationship that you said earlier. So when something does happen, you've already got the established relationship and you might not, if it's a, a slow time inquiry, you might not be calling 911, you might be calling RIC directly or whatever your whatever your connection is. So yeah, great, great. What other, what other things, advice would you say? I mean, is there any other sort of friction or but what, what other things should a church know about working with their local sort of police department? I don't know what kind of friction that they would have. This is my experience in 20 years. Most religious institutions, no matter, could be, you know, a mosque, it could be a temple or a synagogue, and it could be a church uh, from any denomination. They're, they are very welcoming and open to law enforcement and they really appreciate it. And I'm always, I'm coming from the law enforcement side. They, they, they really appreciate when law enforcement stops by, when they engage with them. And then obviously, you know, depending on the, the faith of the officer, I'm sure there's a question like, you know, do you go to church? Are you interested in going to church? I mean, I wouldn't do the hard sell unless you got a good vibe, but usually you'll, you'll get that vibe from that officer because they're interested. They'll be asking questions about the religion. They'll be asking a question about the services. So, you know, you have that connection. But in my experience, like I said, I don't see much friction. The only thing I can think of off the top of my head, there might be certain communities that have immigrated here that might not trust the police simply because where they were from, they didn't trust the police. So they're very supportive of the police when they come around, why are they around? You're not allowed to go in there, things like that. And likewise, if you're law enforcement and you're listening to this, you know, always understand and respect the customs of that religious institution because you're, you're going in there. And obviously if it's an immediate threat, you're, you know, it doesn't matter, but you're going in there, you, you got to show the same kind of respect that, that you would for anybody because, you know, you represent the government at that point. I love what you said there. And, and it's a really key point for House of Worship that you can actually bring some of these officers to faith. And I think during, I mean, I joined the police at 19. What was I, a detective at 21, 22, I forget, very early. So I only had limited time on the street. But even in the, the time I was on the street, I saw some horrendous things and, you know, a lifelong Christian. But I know when I when I look back now and reflect, I know there were some of my peers, they were searching. They were looking for a deeper meaning to their life. When you're seeing so much brokenness, so much pain, so much um, just trouble in people's lives and, and so many people in crisis, it does, for me, it really strengthened my faith because it led me to say, well, well there has to be a God. There, there has to be someone because, you know, why are people living in such um, poor conditions that, that there is a God that can help them, you know, change their circumstances. So when I used to see that, for me, it really reminded me of my faith that there is there is a path to change their circumstance or um, through their faith they can, can change where they are. 
Uh, and I think you touched on a good point, but there's an opportunity for churches to reach out to those law enforcement that we know are seeing so much and try and lead them to faith. As you said, in a delicate way, no one wants to be that church saying, hey, you know, but but I think even just asking them saying, you know, I'd love to know where you are on your faith journey or, you know, how do you feel when you see a child being abused or when you're going to a house in domestic violence or a woman's in refuge, I think asking them some questions about how you are feeling, I think churches would be surprised. All right. Don't you agree as to how those officers might open up and share, you know, I'm really struggling with this. I find it's really hard. Um, Would you agree? I've, I've seen that actually happen where people are, a lot of people, and I can't say it's 100% of people, but there's a lot of people, especially a lot of people in law enforcement, they they hold religion in a little bit of reverence. And when you're speaking to somebody who has devoted themselves, whether, you know, it, like I said, it's a priest or it's a rabbi, mm-hmm. you feel that connection and and you feel that it is okay to to open up and to to share what you're feeling and there's a lot of people in crisis in law enforcement because of what we see and the stress that we have every day. And I know internally in our department, you know, having, having a, a clergy as part of the department and most departments do uh, is important because, you know, it, it kind of binds us all together. You know, there's, there's obviously the, the blue, right. The thin blue line that, that holds us together, but there's also, a lot of those people in that blue line also have a deep sense of, of religion and they see things and do things every day that it helps to talk about it. And for me, you know, it's funny. I, I talk about how these things can help. That's exactly how it helped for me was I was assigned to a, a sp- specific zone and the captain told me to go inter- interact with this, this synagogue and help them with security. And so I went there and I started talking with them. And at that time I just started my family and it was one of these things like, you know what? Uh, I had stopped on religion for a while, but uh, it was always a part of me and I was, you know, very spiritual. Mm. You know, I, I really connected with that rabbi and it changed my life. It really did change my life. It made my life better, but it also became such a big part of my life that, you know, to this day. So I think obviously things happen for a reason and that's why I was sent there. Wow. Well, thank you for, Share that, that, that strong testimony. And you leave that towards the end. You should have led with that story. But, you know, that's great. Well, Arik, as we start to to wrap up the podcast, um, I'm grateful and honoured that you would take the time to talk with me. And I know there's, there might be a few sort of curveballs that I've given you because, you know, you're a, a experienced law enforcement officer, but some of these things aren't necessarily what you do um, day to day. But really grateful for the wisdom you shared. I know it's going to help many people. But I just want to give you a few moments because I know the Farms Nation podcast, I love being on there. You interview some really cool people. You know, you're a competitive shooter, you're a firearms instructor. I want to give you a couple of minutes just to talk about how people can interact with you and then share a little bit more again about your podcast before we close up. Well, I mean, the the easiest thing to do is to either listen to the show or now I'm I'm recording the show uh, like you with a, a video portion. So if you if you want to watch the show, it's, it's Firearms Nation on YouTube or it's the Firearms Nation podcast on any podcast app, Spotify, whichever one that, that you listen to, Apple Podcasts, that's always fine. And uh, like I said, we, you know, I talk to competitive shooters, but I talk to them, I talk to the highest level, the world champions. And you learn a lot about not just, you know, shooting because it becomes repetitive, but how these people overcome tremendous odds 
to be the best in the world. When you talk to people who are in law enforcement and and they share their their stories and what they did to overcome them. And I speak, I love my favorite is, is speaking with authors. Uh, someone writes a book. I mean, they took the time to to put all that information out there. I want to help amplify that 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 knowledge. And you know, sometimes whether it's fiction or nonfiction, you know, I've talked to some pretty amazing fiction authors, and we talk about the Second Amendment. Uh, it's not a Second Amendment podcast, but I brought on some people who are very pro Second Amendment and learned a lot from them. So it's a way to to open up and and share. I know there's a lot of controversy when it comes to to firearms, but at the end of the day, I I personally believe that um, it's a tool and it's always the person behind the tool that's good or bad uh, because you know and I know that the people who want to protect themselves, who want to be the sheepdogs, you know, that's a necessary tool. It's very similar to, you know, the wolf that carries the same thing, but, you know, we're the protectors. And so everyone can be a protector of their own family or their, their, own, their own self. So having that is, is, is a very useful tool. And you talking about getting authors on, I think I owe you a signed book or did I give you one? I can't recall. You, I'm calling you, myself on. I did, just sent you one. Okay, yeah. good. I'm a, I'm a man of my word. I didn't want to be caught out there. I was, when no. you were saying that, I was thinking, I'm sure when I last spoke to him, I promised him a signed book. So, well, it's great. Like I said, please check out the Firearms Nation podcast. I'm sure Eric's going to be on again, talk about some more stuff. But for now, you have a great day and I'll talk to you again, Eric. Take care. And to your listeners, thank you very much for for ever having Simon bring me on. And uh, Simon, it's always a pleasure talking to you. I love your accent.